You're listening to the Punisher Waterfowls, the Union 0430 podcast. Brought to you by Real Geese Decoys, the most technological advanced silhouette decoys on the market. And Vortex Canada, the force of optics. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Union 0430. What a treat we have for you tonight. Episode 89. Um, and coming to us all the way from the peg, Mr. Jim Fisher from Delta Waterfowl. Um, I'll, I'll, do a, I'll do a quick uh, intro, Jim. Uh, just a sec. We'll introduce Philly. Philly is coming to us all the way from Port Perry, Ontario. Um, Dave is out, I believe, uh, putting out a fire so he couldn't make it tonight no, he and rescuing uh, a cat from a tree <laughs> rescuing <laughs> a cat from a tree um mark is officially in newfoundland right now gone back to the help uh help his dad after suffering that heart attack so uh mr vich um sending nothing but big love and and prayers your way mark i know you're thinking about us um to the man of the hour mr jim fisher you know so Jim, first off, we got to thank Barry Keeks for, for introducing us and, and Barry saying, you know what, I think, I think Jim would, would really be uh, a good guest to have on the show. And then from what you had said to me, Barry, Barry speaks highly of the podcast. So I think we both owe him uh, a, little bit, <laughs> a little bit of a thank you right there. Um, so Mr. Jim Fisher is the vice president of uh, Canadian policy with Delta Waterfowl. So, um, and not, and, and this is by no means a slag against your age, uh, Jim, but has been with Delta ever since 1990, correct? Yeah, since uh, 19, great. yeah, since 1990, he's been with Delta full-time since 1993. So um, ladies and gentlemen, if, there is something that comes up when this show is when you're listening. Um, I can guarantee you, Jim's got an answer for you because he's been around for he's been around right from, um, you know, for a long time. So there, there's nothing. We're going to hit him with some questions. We're going to get all kinds of great information tonight from uh, from the Duck Hunters organization. So, Jim, buddy, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Well, it's yeah, just my pleasure to be here, and yeah, we could have a love in around uh, Barry Keeks, of course, and uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for having us, Damien and Phil. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, no, um, you know, uh, we've so uh, a real good friend of mine, and I'm not sure if you've had a chance to meet him yet, is Billy Duggan. Um, now, Billy is a Billy is a West, so I had worked with Billy when I worked with DU. Um, so, and, and Billy is a good friend of mine. So when I found out Billy was, uh, was coming and joining up with you guys, I thought, you know, what, what a great fit because, uh, and, and Bill's got a, a extremely long history with Delta as well. Right. So, um, you know, I, I just, I just think it's a, it was a match made in heaven. So it's great. So Jim, you know, I did do a little bit of, I, I gotta admit, I did do a little bit of research on you you know, first, first, when you come on and, you know, he may know that he will stalk people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> openly, yeah. Now, yeah. <laughs> well, no, because, you know, like being in the waterfowling world, like you, you, you talk to people and you see like, 
when you talk to people and they and they see like somebody that works for Delta or someone that works for for DU or something, and people go, man, how do you get that job? Like that, what an amazing job that is, right? And I'm always curious when 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 I do get to meet somebody that's worked um, with this. Um, first off, it's obviously not for the money because um, working for a, for a nonprofit organization, um, you're definitely not doing it for the paycheck. But you know, Jim, when when I when I was reading up about you and I'm going to check my notes because I don't want to, I want to make sure that I get it right. But one of the things that, that I read was that you were so keen in understanding how the ducks and the wetlands, you know, work with the farmers out West. And, and that just, you know, it, it, it's such a, I don't know. It's not what you think when somebody says, well, I, I wanted to go to work for, for Delta. Uh, why you, you like hunting ducks? Well, yes, I like hunting ducks, but there's, there's a scientific reason behind it. There's, there's a curiosity behind it. And when, when I read that about you, that it was, you know, you really did have, you really wanted to understand this relationship between the wetlands, the ducks and, and the farmers, which is, you know, um, huge out where you are with the Perry Prairie pothole region. Yeah, no, that's, that's, Good way to frame it up and and that has, has been a lot of what i've done with delta has been kind of sitting down around the coffee table uh, in in farmers kitchens and and having good heart-to-heart -heart talks about you know what what they what drives them yeah and and finding common ground and you know i think a lot of the narrative around farming and the environment is kind of misunderstood I think and by and large and that farmers are often kind of thought of as out there kind of you know making a living and at without regard for the environment and, that, and I don't know where that comes from it's almost like people thinking of us hunters as as people doing something bad out on the landscape but it's just not well informed right so if you're a farmer I mean, and I've met some of the, the greatest producers through the three prairie provinces and actually, quite frankly, across Canada, working on this ALICE program that Delta developed. Um, but, I, but one of the farmers that I know and love out in the Battle River area of Alberta, he oh, said, River you know, yeah, he, he basically said, you know, who, who cares more about the environment than the very people who live here? And, you know, I... Yeah. I, I want this to be, you know, a fabulous place to live. And so their, their health depends on that. And so, so we have a lot of common ground, in fact, and, and it's been a joy to work with Delta to, to try and, you know, rather than develop conservation from ivory towers and top down and telling the farmers, this is what we're going to either regulate you or we're going to do this or that to you. Mm -hmm. Boy, maybe you can say, gee, like, Hey, these wetlands are out in our crop fields and we're trying to grow commodities such that we can, you know, pay our way and make a, earn a living. And yet there all the market signals that a farmer receives for those prairie wetlands, prairie potholes in their fields, they're all negative. Yeah. So, you know, whether you think about taxes or opportunity costs, or, you know, there's a long list of, you know, farming around obstacles costs producers yeah. money with big equipment and all the rest of it. 
And yet society benefits from that, not just us duck hunters, which, you know, we're the key drivers here, but yeah. those wetlands provide all these other environmental goods and services that benefit all of us. And so that's where you can kind of say, look, like, let's start providing the farmers with some, some financial incentives to, to pr protect and conserve those wetlands. Jim, maybe you can educate me on this because, um, so, so in the past, so let's say, and, and if I'm right out of it, please correct me. So let's say in the last, so 15 to 20 years, um, let's talk about how there was, or, or what I think, there, there was a, a lot of habitat loss going on out, out in the prairies, right? Because the farmers are, are you know, the, they've got their bills to pay. So, you know, constantly taking more land to, to get their, to get their uh, their crops in in order to make more money but it seems as though what i'm thinking now in the last you know five to ten years delta has come in and that's where you've really started to see the cooperation between the planning of delta and then the planning of the farmer and trying to marry the both together so that both people are, are being successful and, and achieving their goal, right? Is, is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, again, there's misinformation, uh, I think. Yeah. My whole career, and I'm like you alluded to earlier, I've been around for a while. So our, my whole career, the mantra has always been, we've lost 70% of our wetlands. Yeah. And, and boy, you go driving around, you go, gee, is, it, is this really true? So there, that, that to me is totally misinformed and such and if you talk to the people who track this stuff it's up to 70 percent so there are regions within say okay. one of the prairie provinces you could find areas that yeah it might be as bad as that but by and large the best estimates we have suggest that we've lost over the last say 25 years yeah maybe six to eight percent that we've lost that's it and yeah, and so it, if you look at the real wow. numbers, it's not as not as drastic. Drastic, yeah. That, if if it's a wetland, a shallower wetland within a crop field, the loss rates are about triple the average right. loss rate. So and it makes sense, right? Like we talked about. So yeah. so that's where you can marry our interests with the producer's interests and start saying, Absolutely. look, if there's all these environmental benefits, including our beloved ducks, let's start slapping our wallet giving a bit of money and so we've we've actually had huge progress here especially in manitoba we're very proud and i'm working on a program that's based on the alice model we could talk about alice perhaps later but but yep. the the whole idea is to provide financial incentives on an annual basis so just like they get paid every year for if they have beef or canola or wheat yeah um that they would get a, a payment for the environment environmental services that they provide i.e wetlands and so we've come up with a model where we're paying farmers 75 percent of cash rental rate annually for wow. existing shallow wetlands within crop fields and we've got we had one of delta's former uh, staffers was in the palester regime with the conservative party here and uh, yeah. obviously palester resigned uh, last year Mm -hmm. um, but but before before they left, they got um, over two hundred million dollars set aside in a, an endowment fund or a trust, yeah, and a, and a 
about a quarter of that is specific to protecting wetlands on crop fields. And so we've got a robust program that's going to be there forever because it's in an endowment fund. And so yeah. we're, we're ecstatic about that. So there's good news, you know, on, on that front. The, the awesome thing is, is that um, Phil is here listening to this. Phil has never, ever um, seen the prairie pot, pothole region. Um, but this fall coming, him and some buddies are going out and they're going to, they're going to do some freelance. They're going to do some hunting. So great. I know, I know Phil, you've, you've seen it, pictures of it and you've watched enough video of hunting shows and stuff, but and I've driving over that, them and you've flown <laughs> over them, but driving the trans Canada and it, and it really is potholes. It is just pothole, 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 pothole and full of which is what blew my mind. Like I thought Ontario had birds. Ontario doesn't have birds. No. <laughs> Not even well, close. It's, it's funny. I was out, was it yesterday? I want to say, I think it was either yesterday or the day before. I was out driving around and I passed a Saskatchewan license plate. Yeah. Land of the living skies. Land of the living skies. Right. Big oh. sky country. Big sky country. So, so yeah, so I, I'm... I'm excited for Phil. I'm excited for him to get out there this fall and, and witness it and just see the numbers and, and see the, uh, I, re I remember the, cano the canola fields um, and the, uh, you know, just, it, it was wild. It, was, it, it really yeah. was. No, it's, it's quite a landscape. And of course, those the prairie potholes are the remnants of the last ice age, you know, that yeah. scraped out those potholes, the glaciers mm -hmm. did. And so, in fact, that leaves us with an incredible density of wetlands and an incredible density of ducks. And so, in the prairie pothole region of the three Canadian prairie provinces and some of the five of the states in the north, um, we, we see, you know, places that would have 100 pairs of ducks per square mile. And if you were to look at some of the best landscapes in Ontario around the Great Lakes or, say, yeah. in the boreal forest, you know, you might see five, five pairs of ducks per square mile. So five mm -hmm. versus 60 to 100, you know, it just tells you the magnitude of the breeding densities of ducks. Not and to say important. that the areas, those other yeah. areas aren't important. They are very important for a lot of reasons, but yeah. just, just it's good to highlight that. Yeah, and, and it is because, so, you know, I, I've been, um, I was a vice, I was a vice chair on a Delta committee in the past, I've, I've worked for DU. Um, I know, I know how the committees and how the people, you know, I know how they think and, and I know what their questions are a lot of times when it comes to fundraisers and seeing the money and stuff. And sometimes they just, um, and, and I get it because, you know, the, the, they're raising money in their hometown and stuff like that. But sometimes that money, because of the, because of the importance of the prairie pothole region. And like you said, three Canadian provinces and four states, right? So North yeah, Dakota. Yeah, part of five, but yeah. yeah. A little um, bit of more than there. Yeah. You know, a huge geographical area that that's that's supported by this money, right? So um, it, it is, it, it's, it's, it's the duck breeding, it's the duck factory, right? And yeah. It's, we've, it's, we, all, we all remember that term from back it, in the day, it is, the duck factory. Yeah, it is where, like you said, you allude to there with, both Ducks Unlimited and Delta, we are focused on that area. But having said that, there's certainly a lot of 
need to spend money locally also in you know places like Ontario I mean especially mm -hmm. for local hunters there and all down the Atlantic flyway and so you, you need to do both actually in the end of the day Absolutely. so yeah and uh and and both great organizations if you're a duck hunter you should be supporting both obviously so I I agree with you 100% on that Jim um can you give us a little bit of an intro or background on 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 Delta sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Delta, it, it's actually quite an old organization. It, it kind of started way back in 1911, believe it or not, mm -hmm. um, kind of, you know, in one way, shape or form. And then back in the 30s, when DU was started, Delta kind of really sprouted some wings as well. And kind of at the late, late 30s, uh, Aldo Leopold, who was a forefather of conservation of professor in Wisconsin sent one of his grad students up to the Delta Marsh in Manitoba and uh, that was kind of the real beginnings of of what most people would relate to Delta and that's you know doing student research on issues important to, to ducks and uh, so we did that research for the next 50 plus years um, mostly funding grad students to do their work so we got important answers related to what duck managers needed to do. Um, and then we also trained a heck of a lot of biologists that went on for, you know, for careers with government and Ducks Unlimited and Delta in the end. And, uh, and then I guess in the, in the late 1980s, we had kind of a shift and we, we started thinking about doing more. And that was kind of the beginnings of things like adopt a pothole, hen houses. And then in the mid 90s, we started looking at predator management and uh, other things. And, and so it kind of was a shift to expand beyond our initial largely student research base to include, we have four, we consider four pillars now with Delta. So the student research is one. Uh, and duck production is another, which is the predator stuff in the, and hen houses. And then we have a conservation pillar, which is the, kind of the wetland conservation stuff I was talking about earlier. Um, and then we have, you know, perhaps most importantly, never mind the ducks, it's the actual duck hunters themselves. And, and so that, that's kind of a, a hunter R3 uh, recruitment, retention and reactivation effort that wraps up a bunch, you know, defending or defending areas that are threatened to be closed and, and advocating for good hunting policies within government. So. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that is now, or I guess it, it always has been, but that that's your role now. So the policy now, especially the Canadian policy, um, I know Delta had a huge part to do with, um, you know, the online hunter education here in, in Ontario um, and, and getting involved in, in, in a lot of of what duck hunters are concerned about right now, right? That, that so I, yeah. I know policy and and writing policy, and sometimes people may get a little bit bored when they think about policy because it's just it's a bunch of laws and acts and, and going back and forth. Um, but when you say that Delta is really listening to the duck hunter when when they're when they're forming their policy that I, I think that's a very fair statement to make yeah Correct. no it's it's a it's a major thing so if you and the and i guess what really drives us is if you look at the numbers of hunters 
And our best metric to do that is through the sales of our migratory game bird and stamps, our Canadian duck yeah. stamp. Um, and if you look at it in the late 70s, it peaked at a, over a half a million Canadian duck hunting license sold. And then it, the trough was, I believe, in 2003 or no, 2005 was about 140,000. And we've come back now, we're probably at about 180,000 ish. Yeah. And uh, our, our goal at Delta is to get that to 290,000. So kind of a, somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. Um, and, and so that really drives a lot of what we want to see happen. And so whether it's, you know, defending areas, as I mentioned, you know, like we've talked about some of the areas uh, that, that are under threat with bylaw, dis discharge bylaws and different things. It seems to be very prevalent in Ontario. So we work with OFAH and others to try and ensure those areas, you know, someone shows up. And so if yeah. you know, the world is run by those who show up is one of the, That's right. one of my colleagues, uh, one of his favorite sayings. But uh, so you, if you have hunters show up with a, a good positive message at those council meetings, you know, you can have an impact. And we've certainly Absolutely. seen that on a number of fronts. Then you have other things like being proactive. So that's what, things like the Ontario Online Hunter Ed that we've just mm -hmm. got. Thank you. So we only mm -hmm. have two provinces left uh, to get rid of that onerous thing. So that's, you know, being proactive and removing barriers to point of entry. So if you mm -hmm. think, hey, I want to take someone hunting, what are all the different steps and licenses and training and equipment and all this stuff? Like, good God, you know, if you want to try football, well, you go run over there. I'll throw, the, throw a ball. If it hits you between the eyes, yeah. maybe it's not for you, hey? But you tried it. But yeah. oh no, and I would even liken it to taking someone to a trap range. You could take any person off the street, go drive to the trap range, and they could try shooting a real live gun yeah. at a clay target. Well, why is duck why is duck hunting or any other form of hunting yeah. that so, much more dangerous, right? So that's, that's right. Let's so cool, it, cool our jets on this type of stuff. Like, come on, man. So, yeah. so one of the, that leads me to another key one is this idea of hunter apprentice licensing. So right now there's 40 states and two provinces. So Quebec and British Columbia have this hunter apprentice licensing concept. And what yeah. it is, is let's say, say Damien, that I just met you on today, that's Thursday. Mm -hmm. And you were going hunting on the weekend. Hunter apprentice licensing allows you to take me and I could actually take a shot at a duck. Mm -hmm. That's mind numbing. Like it, yeah. it sounds like common sense. Maybe you've actually done that with someone, you know, I don't know. It's possible mm -hmm. right? that some people are doing this, but, but that's, that's some of the thinking that we need to promote. And so, so those are proactive things, things yeah. like Sunday hunting, things like uh, age. Why do we have to yeah. wait till we're 12? Yeah. Right. By the time you're 12, it's starting to get to the point where it's no longer cool to hang around mom and dad. That's right. That's a great time to start thinking about taking your kid hunting. Come on. So again, in the States, there's 40 States that it's up to the parents. So there's yeah. no age requirement whatsoever. It's not in any state. And then now we've got BC has always been 10. Manitoba switched from 12 to 10. We helped get that ha happening. Alberta just switched down to 10 from 12 and we got also helped to get Newfoundland dropped from 16 to 12 so we yeah. you know so those are some of the key things we can do um, to improve things for 
for the future of honey. Growing, and, growing and up in, yeah, yeah, sorry, growing up in growing up in Newfoundland, I can tell you, uh, I was I was well before sixteen when I was walking down the road with the with the shotgun on my shoulder. Actually, a real funny story. Uh, a real funny story was um, I I I don't know maybe I was 13, 12, 13 years old, uh, and I I'm walking I'm from a small town of four hundred people, um, and I'm walking down walking right down through town with with uh, my grandfather's single shot cooey over my shoulder, and uh, the RCMP officer pulls up, and he was like, "Where are you off to this morning?" And I said, I'm, and I, I could point to where I'm going, right? I said, I'm, I'm heading out here. I'm going duck hunting. Do you know what he asked me? Does your mother know where you're going? And I said, oh yeah. I said, of course she knows where I'm going. He said, all right, you be careful then. And that was it. That was, that was the, as long as your mother know where you, where you're going, then I'm all right with you walking down the road with a shot because go. it was just, it was just simpler times, right? right. And this I, is I, where we, we, we find we got tying ourselves in knots, right? Yeah, because someone's looking out for the, the, you know, oh hey, this one instance where something bad happened, so government better change yeah. regulations so it fixes it all, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, hold on a mm -hmm. second, the odds of that ever happening again are one in three yeah. point nine trillion, right? So yeah, that's right. So yeah, that's that's a thing, and, and good for you to just go, right? And yeah. and yep. so that and and so sometimes the regulations has to catch up to what people are doing. Because they're just saying, look, that's ridiculous that I have to be 16 to go shoot at yeah. a duck in Newfoundland. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you sort of kind of touched on it, and and Jim, I, I'm not sure how how much uh, how many episodes of this show you've watched, but we are always all over the place. So you may have to reel us back in, or we may have to go back to a topic, but you yeah. touched on it. And that was the hunter, uh, the hunter are the three R's here, the recruitment, yes. the retention, uh, and the reactivation. So this is, you know, I'm, I don't want to take anything away from the work that Delta does, but this to me seems like the no brainer that the effort needs to be placed. I, I get it, habitat and saving habitat and stuff like that. But it's just like you alluded to with, with the ages and, and people that are, are, for some reason, when it comes to hunting, people are scared or, or, or it's this taboo topic. But every year it seems like it's getting harder to have hunters. We need more hunters out. Uh, we had yeah. just done Phil when we had done the, uh, the Toronto sportsman show, um, this past weekend and the amount of kids that we had seen, um, it wasn't astronomical, but it wasn't zero either. Hey, Phil, like we seen yeah. some, we seen some pretty interested kids in the bit into hunting. Obviously there's a ton of kids that fish, but when it comes and to these, hunting, these were yeah. engaged kids. Yeah. Like you, you can tell these kids watch, but as much YouTube as I do, like, they, they knew the what's what and there was the one the one young gentleman we just posted him on on the instagram on the Insta yeah yeah um like that boy could ran a duck ran a duck call that's testament and and that that kid that's testament to his dad too his, his yeah. dad showing the interest taking him out um and and trying to teach him right so well, yeah well, um, it, it's funny you bring that up so my my stepson he's 10 and a half so the wife just took him during March break to this course and it's like this stay alone, stay home alone course. 
So kind of like, you know, to, to, to prep yep. them into, you know, like going, coming home after school by yourself. And what yep. do you do? And it's funny. So they leave the house. They're not gone five minutes. And the wife calls me. I'm like, like you were just here. Like, what's up? And I had, it wasn't the wife. It was my stepson. And we had this conversation on the phone. He's like, when can I go hunting? Because <laughs> like, I've already taken him out. I already, I already took him out once. Yeah, a couple of years ago, he's a little younger. He's like, like, when can I go? Like, like, when can I hunt? I'm like, well, yeah. okay. So, well, you'll yeah. be 11 this September. Yeah. So next duck season, well, we're we're gonna go shopping. We're gonna buy you a gun. There you go. Just because it's for him, right? You know, it's a, I got a big space. There's, there's space. <laughs> What's the wife gonna do, right? <laughs> we'll have to buy him a new gun. I'm like, dude, like next fall, you can duck hunt. And it's amazing to see him like at, at the age of like 10, 10 and a half, like just right switched on. He wants to go. Well, yeah. hey, he's I getting think... so independent now. He's oh, walking yeah. home from school on his own. Well, I think he, he might have to go turkey hunting this spring. There you go. And 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 I think and yeah, and I, I think that's that's our responsibility. And one thing that that we, as, as part of this show, that we try to do as much as possible, and, and Dave is not on here, um, but it is Dave's biggest passion, and is what he spends the majority of his fall, is trying to get kids. And, and that could be an 18-year-old kid, or it could be a 12-year-old kid. It doesn't matter to him. He wants to get people out hunting, and, and he spends a, a great deal of his time at, and attention to that. So. Um, again, we, we got off, Jim, but, but go well, for it on the, on this, the recruitment. This, is, this all leads into the other, you know, perhaps the most important thing is actually the mentored hunting stuff. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you can change the regs and all that, and that's good. Like, we need to remove barriers, but eventually you're going to say, okay, well, we don't have to do any more work there. Now we just mm -hmm. need to take an, an ever-increasing urbanite population of Canadians and somehow get them out of the cities. Yeah. And uh, so, so that is exactly what you're talking about. So Delta is very keen using its chapter volunteers like, like mm -hmm. yourself. And, and as you know, and, and, you know, some of the money that's raised at our chapter events gets yeah. retained by the chapter, as you're well aware that's of, right. Damien. Yeah. And then the chapter can use it for a number of things, but often it's mm -hmm. for mentored hunts. And, and uh, so, so we're very keen on that and we're, we're getting uh well, I'd say across Canada, we've, we're probably getting maybe 50 hunts a year out of it. Um, not just all for kids. We, yeah. uh, we also are very keen on including adults because it's like planting a tree. If you plant a, you know, yeah. a, a That's right. five foot tree, it'll probably take hold a little easier, right? And it's easier if someone maybe could drive and could maybe has a little money to, to buy a few shotgun shells or buy, go, yeah. you know, go and buy a shotgun if they actually like it, right? And so they can instantly become a, a yeah you know the, the goal is to make them an independent hunter so an adult right. is a lot closer one thing that uh, that we had heard i can't remember phil maybe you remember who it was was telling us this um but what they had found and maybe it was actually i think maybe it was barry that had told us when he had come on the show so um i i've known barry i've attended barry's uh, south nation dinner and and in my opinion, and not that I have seen everybody, but in my opinion, Barry's 
Uh, South Nations Youth Mentorship Program is probably the best that I had ever seen. Um, it's it, just an amazing program. And I remember, I'm pretty sure it was Barry that had said, so what was going on was that um, a very, it's a very competitive um, program to be a part of in that area. And there's some kids that it's sing, single parents, right? And what's happening is that the single parent now who had no intention of, of hunting or didn't want to hunt, but because their kid has taken such a keen interest into it, now the parent is, a, is attending these events and, and starting to get into hunting just because it's, a, it's something else that the parent and the, and the child can bond with. And Absolutely. How, yeah. ama like how amazing is that to be able to say that you can hang your hat on that you, a son and a daughter and the mom or dad are now, um, are now spending even more time together all because of a program that, that yeah. you know, you started and, and, and great point. I mean, if you're going to invest in the kids, you have to be thinking about that. What's the next step? What's the next step to, to get them such that you don't have to have the chapter take them every time. That's right. So, you know, you'd have a bigger impact if you can enroll the whole family in. And, and it's interesting because in COVID times, we, we, when we did the, our youth hunts at Delta Marsh, like yeah. just West Winnipeg here, mm -hmm. we used to always have an overnight component and they'd come and stay in the marsh and we'd, you know, and the parents would drop the kids off and say, see you later. Good luck. You know, and the kids <laughs> would be up till three bouncing off the walls, having a big time. And, yeah. But now with COVID, we stopped the overnight part. And so what we said was even with vehicles, we thought, well, gee, maybe we should, you know, not pick the kids up and drive them around inside enclosed vehicles while they go to their field or whatever. So that way we, we had the parents, oh, gee, now they, so they got kind of dragged along, right? And so there's okay. more and more yeah. parents, um, non-hunting parents that actually got engaged in the process and were out there in the field, got involved with cleaning the birds and the whole nine yards. So, yeah. Well, I, I, I would point. hazard, to, oh, sorry, Philly, but I would hazard to think that if you're a parent, even if you're, you know, you didn't grow up or you weren't surrounded in a, in a hunting family or a hunting environment, but if you had to come pick your kid up from hunting and that kid shot his first, his or her first duck and to see the energy that's coming off this child, it would yeah. have to be contagious, would it not? Yeah. Oh, I, that's some of my fondest memories is, I'll never forget, we took four kids not and one year at Delta and we went in a field and it just got thrashed that night. So we saw there was, I don't know, thousands of ducks in there. Yeah. And so there was four kids and one of them was, his last name was Sharp and I knew his dad was Jimmy Sharp. And so the four kids shot, they had six scotch doubles. We were giving them one shell at a time. And I had two kids. So I was alternating kids. One shell, yeah. you shoot. And the next time the flock come, the other kid could shoot. Well, four kids who had never fired at a duck in their lives shot 32 mallards. And way, way to ruin a bunch of kids for every future hunt they ever go on. Unbelievable <laughs> to start off, right? I, like I went my yeah. whole first year and I got this many ducks. I got nothing yeah, for a year. Exactly. But anyway, exactly. so so these kids were on fire. And then when it when Jimmy came to pick up his son, he was like, his dad. So Jim said, Did you get any ducks? And he goes, I got I got a limit of ducks, Dad. And he was just jumping up and down. He was so excited. And he said, 
what you did what he goes yeah i shot a limit down and he like no way you know it was just this most incredible like you're saying just an incredible moment right and Absolutely. you know to have a proud proud dad and a proud son there in that case but yeah and and, and the the good lord knows um kids these days um, they, they certainly need that. They need that companionship with their, with their parents. Right. We, I think the kids need it more today than, than ever. Um, and, and what better way to, to do it over, well, over being outside and, and connecting that, that way. That, yeah. The, the great outdoors, the, the time together in the field, something you can do your entire life and pass Absolutely. on through the generation. Like it's, and, and the food, you know, yeah. enjoying that food and prepping it and maybe taking it out in the dead of winter and yeah. roasting up some ducks, you know, it, there's so many things that just, it just, you know, you just embrace it all, right? Like it's, it, uh, it's overwhelming. Yeah. So, so back to, back to the recruitment, the retention. So tell us about this program, Jim, like how, how Delta is, is tackling this beast because it is a beast. It is. It, it's extremely challenging. We're, we're getting more sophisticated over time, but, but the challenge is, is we need chapters to do it. Right. Right. So we do need more people to join chapters. And for some people, that's what, what it's all about for them. Mm -hmm. um, for, for me, even working adult all this time, like we started doing these. So we were involved way back when they first brought in the waterfowler heritage days back in 1999. So we fought in Ottawa for that special season just for kids because um, the Americans had had it for a long time prior and so we we went to bat for it there um, and and so since that time I've been involved I think I missed one year um, where taking the kids so so I love it I make yeah. time for it and I and yeah. I also do um, a kind of a new Canadian hunt because we had a lot of people moving here okay, from other yeah. countries that hunted in the old country and need need a little helping hand to get going. Mm -hmm. uh, we also do university hunts. We have a new program uh, focused on wildlife management students, such yeah. that our future wildlife professionals, maybe in government, that are making decisions around hunting and its future, actually may mm -hmm. be hunters or at least have been exposed to a positive experience with it. So, so we're working with. Uh, uh, what's the Fleming College? Fleming, yeah, Fleming College in in Lindsay. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Fleming Brad. Um, yeah, and and also in other provinces, we're we're looking to do that, and we have we have a few of those going on right now. But so so we need the chapters to organize and be the be the mentors for the for the new hunters, and so that's kind of our model, and it's been working extremely well. And, uh, but, but we'd like to see that grow even more. That's, that's to me, uh, a massive thing. Um, and then we need all our chapters to fully embrace that as well. So, so, uh, so that's, that's kind of yeah. what, what we're, how we're doing it. And so we're probably taking out, you know, on a non COVID has been tough. You know, we've been doing some online virtual stuff, but it's nothing like getting a real gun in your hand and giving it a try. But anyway, um, yeah, so we're we're typically on an average year hitting about a thousand new participants across Canada. So we'd we'd love to get that you know ramped up even more. So yeah, no, uh, actually with with Fleming um, with Fleming College, um, we do 
it, we call it a bursary, but it's a really, really small thing uh, because we're such a small business. Um, but what we do is uh, a first year student with the fish and wildlife program, um, we select them, they design um, either a t-shirt or a hoodie or an article of clothing. Uh, they design it, we sell it, we give them 100% of the profit that we make um, and it allows them to go to school. So, so we've done it two years in a row now. Um, and, and next year, we're looking to do, a, a, do it a little bit bigger. So, so we've reached out to Fleming. Um, we've talked to the head of the uh, Fish and Wildlife Program that Fleming is 100% on board and want to help us and, and do this. Um, but he introduced me to the young fella. So he's a, a third year student. He's the president of the Delta chapter at Fleming College. He gave me all of the, so I didn't realize that Delta and Fleming had this relationship until, until he told me. So uh, with Dr. Petrie had gotten involved and, and all of this stuff. So it's, it, it is really, really cool. Um, and the really cool thing about it is that it's a bunch, I went to college. Um, I can tell you that when I went to college, um, fundraising for, for, duck habitat was not one of my main priorities so it, it's awesome to see that the, that these that these kids in Fleming are, are have an active chapter going within the college that 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 they're running and so we're going to get involved with them um, a little bit later on in the summer and into the fall and, and try and do some big fundraising with them uh, so we're pretty excited about that hi sweetie you this, snuck this in is, this is my daughter who loves eating bluebells so she's been eating Hey, Chloe. Bluebills. Oh, I'm yeah. Not a, yeah. I'm not a big bluebill fan, but. <laughs> yeah, most people aren't. But anyway, that's my favorite. But, um, but yeah, and I, and I should, should mention, too, we just hired a, a Canadian R3 coordinator. So his, his job is to coordinate uh, mentored hunts with our chapters uh, to get our university hunt program going with Fleming and and expanding that uh, well beyond that. So. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I actually, when we're done here, Jim, I'll, I'll ask you for his contact information because I'd love to, uh, I'd love to chat with him uh, about that yeah. and seeing if there's, seeing if there's any way that, uh, that we can assist with that as, as well. Okay, so we've got that. Let's talk hen houses because, like, okay. like I said before, we hit the record button. Um, I was always of the understanding that hen houses didn't work, or I shouldn't say that they didn't work, but the success of hen houses in Ontario was, was drastically low compared to that of the prairie pothole region. Because the argument that I was given was that there's tons of habitat in Ontario for, for uh, laying ducks to, to have their eggs, vice the, the prairie area where, uh, they just don't have that same habitat. So that was what I was told. That's what I've been believing for the last couple of years. So um, now you're the expert, so you can you can dispel any misinformation yeah. out there. No, I, yeah, I, I guess for me, the hen houses, it's an interesting discussion around it. it. You know, if you look at cost efficiency or return on investment, mm -hmm. Um, putting a hen house in in the prairies, in the parklands of the prairies, uh, kind of Edmonton, Saskatoon, Minnedosa, Brandon, whatever yeah. areas, you're going to get the highest return on investment okay. anywhere in the continent. 
Now, having said that, you know, if you look at we and we did, I worked with Scott Petrie when he was with Long Point, and he's obviously mm -hmm. running Delta now. Um, and I worked with him and then some people in the Pennsylvania uh, Game and Fish, so the state government on both sides of Lake Erie. Yep. And we, so I helped set up a, a grad student who was Jeremy Stemka, who ended up coming up to Western. He was an American. But anyway, so he did his master's looking at hen houses on both sides. And the first challenge we ran into was I rode around with Scott, you know, where are these wetlands we're going to put them out in? Well, there's just not as many wetlands, right, in, in southern Ontario. So, so I think the, the metrics are a lot different. So I don't want to get deep into the weeds here on, you know, yeah. all this stuff, but in the prairies, the number one thing that can increase mallard numbers are, is nest success. So the yeah. hatch rate of nests. In Ontario, the number one thing is habitat. So if you have a wetland is probably the best thing you could do. But, but having said all that, you know, we still found that they were used. Um, I just saw there was an announcement today about a bunch more wetland restoration money coming from the province. Um, and, uh, and there's quotes from Ducks Unlimited folks and Alice, Brian Gilvesi and a bunch of people. But so if we're putting in wetlands, be fabulous to, to enhance those wetlands by putting in a hen house. And so the usage rates say in the prairies might average 60%. In Ontario, you might only have 30% only have usage rates, but nest success would still be far yeah. beyond what you'd experience on the ground. So, right. so for me, yeah. you know, to, for me personally, I think it's a, it's a wise thing to, to invest in. Um, and, and then the other interesting part of all this is that if you look if you go say down to south carolina and you talk to duck hunters there they like to shoot mallards and they're saying well where's all our mallards this has been my whole career yeah you, it's still that way today and they and and so a lot of their ducks yes sure some quite a number come from the prairies you can see a an eastward migration for a lot of mallards but i think the majority of their mallards are coming from the great lake states and provinces so yeah. You know, there's a, there's a need for sure for hen houses to be placed around Ontario. Okay, good. Th that's what I want to hear. Now, now yeah. I've got to now I've got to start making hen houses. Great, awesome. Now, and, now and I've got something that yeah, go for it. Well, there's two interesting things from that study. One is that he had Jeremy saw quite a few wood ducks using them. Yeah. So it was sort oh, of really? an interesting one. And then one of his Pennsylvania hen houses, he was he was catching the hens and banding the hens. And then he was catching the, the ducklings. You can, you can band them as one day old with yeah. plasticine filled leg bands, right? They're modified oh. ones, but they have plasticine. And as the leg grows, it, the plasticine wears away. But, but anyway, okay. so he had the second year, he got the same hen, came back and nested again. And then one of her daughters came after she hatched off her brood. One of her daughters from the previous year hopped up and nested in there. That's so impressive. talk about homing. That was yeah, printing yeah. and homing. It was like Atlantic cool. salmon. Um, yeah, th th that's really cool though because I I didn't know that that would be something. Like I I've always I I know they migrate back to the same area, um, but I never. That's pretty cool that they actually nest in the same in the same spot. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty and, cool. And so that's why you know if say you put out, you know a lot of people ask well if I put one or two out and they don't get used and like, oh, all these things are worthless or what's going on or, 
you know, and that's why I always say, look, like try maybe 10 or something. Yeah. And then you might see some use in the first year, but then it'll kind of build up over the course of the next two or three or four years. So what are you talking about on spacing? So, you know, if, if you're saying put out, put out 10 nest tubes, um, how big of an area would, would you place 10, 10 nesting tubes? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Again, the spacing of wetlands would be the driver. So if you say you had three pairs of mallards per square mile right. in an area with a bunch of wetlands in Southern Ontario, yeah. um, then you'd probably put three out in, in that square mile. But the, the neat thing with mallards is they're very territorial, but that territoriality breaks down as far as their nesting sites. So okay. you might have, if you had a, you know, a series of wetlands in an area, you might be able to put more than three out in that square mile because you'll draw birds from, you know, as far right. as four miles away from, from their territories to where they would actually make a nest. So, Bill, buddy, I, I, yeah, no, Bill, buddy, I've been, I've been hammering Jim with all kinds of questions because I had a ton. Um, do, do you have anything for him, buddy? I'm sorry. I'm just taking this in, like. Because obviously, like, yeah, the the, sci the science behind you know mating and wetlands and ducks and stuff like it's it's all French to me. But like, looking, you know, like and just like just as you bring this up, but you know where to put nest tubes and stuff. Like thinking like, I, I would put like two in a square yeah. acre. Yeah, but like apparently no, because them ducks will kick each other's asses and be yeah. like, no bueno, that this is my house. So like. No, no, they you space uh, the opposite of that. They'll you could put more than one out per wetland. We actually did a match Fenard who works for Delta and Bismarck. He he did a study in Manitoba and where he put one, two, and four hen houses out per wetland. And and looked and he had some cases where all four would have been used once and then got used a second time. Two of them got so he actually had six hatches out of one wetland with four hen houses if you can but, believe but that. those all vary in size though right yeah that would have been a like a acre like a good good acre wetland. yeah like okay, a, yeah, yeah wet, a wetland could be one acre could be 30, 30 yeah no and, and he yeah. was focusing on i believe less than like smaller acres. yeah smaller ones mostly put, put, put puddles for lack of a better yeah. term yeah. yeah that's interesting yeah Jim, yeah, I just know, as we said, like, like oh, we said, like they're territorial. Like, I would have. They are territorial that. as far as spacing in the spring, such that yeah. they have resources for the hens to find food and stuff like that. Yeah, I know geese are territorial. breaks down as far as nesting sites. Yeah, yeah, I, I know geese are territorial. Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> we, yeah. We've all been attacked once or twice in our lives. Yeah. Yep. I'm not. I, we had some questions, uh, Jim. We had uh, we had said a couple weeks ago that you were coming on, and uh, had asked people if they had questions. And we've got to some of them, but there was one fella that had asked a question, and I can't remember, but I, I remember who it is. So I'm trying to while I'm you trying... while you scroll through that. Yeah. Um. So it's funny, like you were mentioning, like rec recruitment when it comes to like necessarily waterfowl hunters but just hunters in general um like recruitment comes at all ages so my wife who's 
29 with a few years experience. Uh, um, she is seriously <laughs> contemplating about doing her courses and such. Um, yes. her, her father is huge into archery. Um, my in-laws have a 60 acre farm, like 20, 25 minutes up the road from our place. And my father-in-law actively hunts grouse, rabbit and turkey by way of archery. Okay. And my wife has a bow. Now she's like, he's my father-in-law, like he's just gone right off the rails. Like he's got like his own 3d course wow. on their farm. So both our kids have bows. My wife's got a bow. I've got a bow. Um, but like she is the same again at, at her age, um, is seriously thinking about going and doing her courses so she can go and like literally sit sit in a little camouflage tent with her dad and maybe shoot a grouse or maybe shoot a turkey like like that's one Isn't thing that um what a great like, great story phil yeah yeah like I, like i know I, she won't pick up a gun i i might buy her a couple if she gets her gets her firearms license we when we do our adult hunts, we so we do ladies hunts, we do veteran hunts, we yep. do all these things. And so it's fascinating to hear the stories. And usually when you do the overnight thing, you know, you, you go out and you shoot on day one, you get the little practice, busting a clay, maybe getting used to the gun before the next morning. And so you're, you're usually sitting around kind of after eating some duck. And we usually do a, a go around the room and have people say, well, how did you kind of come to be here today? And, and you, the stories that come out are fascinating and, and stories, you know, some that pop, you know, kind of related to your story is, you know, a lot of women back, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know any girls that hunted. In fact, I didn't know many people that hunted in my classroom. There was nobody, but anyway, so, so sometimes the daughters actually come out at it later in life and always say, well, geez, you know, my brothers got invited what's you know what was going on here like it's ridiculous right and so yeah. i think we've we've come a long ways um since those times i've also had stories of of uh this last year we had a, a lady who was 29 plus some experience years you know um and and she basically said you know her dad she almost went with him when she was a young young a girl um but didn't have the chance it didn't work out and then he passed and now she's this this one's probably 39 plus some experience and and so now she's come full circle and now she wants to go and learn it and and I, and now she's brought her cousin who's even you know a few yeah, years there's a, there's this trickle down effect day eh? once yeah. once one person once once one person then there's always there's always some it always picks up some steam along the way I don't have the numbers to back up this statement whatsoever, but in Ontario, I would hazard to say that the biggest demographic um, that have seen the, the biggest increase is, I would say, is the young, the, the I would say the 20 to 30 year old female. Um, I would say that is our largest increase in hunters. And that that's that could be, turkey, deer, um, duck, uh, that's across the board, but hunters in general, gen in general terms, I think our, our, our biggest increases are, are that 20 to 30 year old female right now. I think that's where we're seeing the biggest numbers. Yeah. Phil and Damien, like this is something that's in our hearts, eh? Like this is yeah. our passion. This is what, 
this defines us, right? So if someone would have met any one of the three of us, I'm guessing, probably in the first five minutes of a conversation, they'd know you're a hunter. Like it just come, it, yeah, it swells out of us with pride. Yeah. And uh, what, one of my favorite stories that I've, I'm still working on it a bit, but so I live in Winnipeg and I walk, there's a trail, right? There's a creek in, in my backyard, basically. And there's always people walking their dogs and I take our dogs out and you see a hunting breed. You know what you have to do. You have to ask yeah. them the obvious That's question. Right. Well, do you take this, you know, yeah. Moosterlander pointer, what, you know, lab yeah. springer, whatever it is, do you take it hunting? And nine times out of 10, they kind of look at you and they say, well, no, you know? And, yeah. And so you, and then you think about how excited that, that your dog is. Like when I take my, my lab out, my, she's 10 now. When I take her and I got my shotgun and I'm walking in a field or a marsh or something, she's jumping in the air. She's doing power <laughs> laps. Gives you a kiss. She'll jump six feet in the air and give you a kiss, right? Yeah. If you walk five miles, she's walking 20 miles. And, Just, and so those cool. dogs, that's what the dogs are bred for. Those dogs are the, 100%. Their passion comes out. And so I, I often say, you think about that passion, those dogs, and those poor suckers in Winnipeg in the city that those mm -hmm. hunting dogs don't get a chance to actually do what they're kind of bred for. And then I think, what about the people? Yeah. It's the same thing. Absolutely. Right? There's they all just need to be introduced to it. That's all. cities that just have not had an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So it's there to uh, do. It's there to do, I'm sure. Yeah. Jim, buddy, um, we're getting, we're coming up onto our 60 minute mark and, and I feel that we never even got a chance to tap into half the stuff that we could have tapped into with you. Is there anything, cause we're more than happy to have you back on the show again, but is there something, is there something that, that you want to like, uh, uh, yeah. is there something that you want to get out there on this episode? Cause we've, we've got the time to do it. Um, and please take, take There's the platform to do it. Yeah, there's a couple of things I wrote down. So, so one is, you know, we, we were, we were helpful. There's lots of groups and, you know, Delta's not trying to overstate their claim in any of this stuff, but, you know, we helped get the dove season in Ontario mm -hmm. and I hope, hope that's, that's going well. Um, yeah. But, but we're also on the, on, on the move on, on cranes. There's yes. uh, yeah, there's some, some movement. And so we've been pushing, so Delta's part of a, uh, uh, collective uh that meets with the federal government uh, uh just out of curiosity jim so what kind of numbers are you know the government and then delta like is, is there is there a threshold that we want to see yeah so what so what is that it, threshold because i can tell you in ottawa in the ottawa valley there, there's a very there's a very healthy population of crane in the ottawa valley no, and, and I think it's, that's the case. I think if you were to talk to hunters, you know, I've talked to hunters in Thunder Bay and I've talked to them in yeah. Southern Ontario, you know, in the banana belt. And, and so, so basically what's being talked about is get something going, right? So we've been talking about this for quite some time. The crane populations mm -hmm. are growing. Yeah. There's kind of two populations that we won't get into all the details, but the Eastern right. population of cranes aren't as numerous as the Western ones. So that's, so in, Manit in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and, and we actually got it going in Alberta last year for the first mm -hmm. time. And Saskatchewan and Manitoba have had it for over 50 years. Yeah. And the limit's five per day. So it's just like yeah. a food in a Canada goose. But anyway, in, in Ontario, so there are 
three or four states that now are hunting those eastern population cranes, the same ones that would be available for, for Ontario. So the, the estimate would be that, uh, you know, somewhere between eight, eight and 900 birds could be allocated. Now, one of the issues that came up was that the feds do not have uh, a tag system. That would be the most easy and simplest way to bring it in would be to offer eight or 900 tags or assume so many people wouldn't get one and offer a few more. But anyway, so they're not going to do that, uh, it looks like. So the latest is, is, is looking at cent the central zone of Ontario, so not where you're yeah. at. Um, yeah. um, and, and possibly um, looking at some options for uh, a short season where that might be, you know, one bird in the bag for a week or two and, and okay. a small number of WMUs. So that, and to me, that's great because it, some, it is. It's a on start. a lot of these things, you have to get a foot in the door Absolutely. to get the ball rolling, right? Because otherwise you sit and talk and talk and talk and years go by and people retire and Absolutely. Else. And, and it, it just takes a start. Like you look at Ontario and, and reintroducing the wild turkey and, and the successes that Ontario has had um, by properly managing that population. Like it, it is, it, it's skyrocketed now and a very healthy population, a very healthy season um, with a lot of hunters. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So uh, a few WMUs, uh, a small area, this is your litmus test. Um, get it out there, see how the numbers do, see. And then because everything's got to percolate, right? And then you got those Southern states that rely on that Eastern population. Is, is the population still healthy when they get down there through the migration? There's all of those things. So I think exciting. I shot, I, I shot my crane uh, just outside Manitoba or outside Winnipeg. So, uh, so I would love oh, to see good. those things. I'd love to see those things have a season here in Ontario. Um, yeah, they were pterodactyls. Yeah, just a fabulous game bird and great eating and ribeye of the sky, as some people call them. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, and so that's exciting news for Ontario. Uh, something mm -hmm. you know should be framed up in the next year or so uh, to get that ball moving. And and uh, then then the other one is a uh, couple things on the federal side. Our federal duck stamp um, hasn't increased in price since 1991. Mm -hmm. Along, that's it's the only thing in life so, that's never gone up in price. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. so that's one we're we're probably going to work with our chapters to try and get a, a feel for, you know, what what are hunters saying, because yeah. the money goes back to Wildlife Habitat Canada. Okay which I'm lucky to be on the board of right now. And so the money's not going nearly as far, obviously, as it, as it would have in 1991. Um, that's right. Thanks to and, and everything else. So, so anyway, so that's one I, I would like for people to think about a little bit. Um, and the other one is the federal government's talked about for a number of years as well as is the modernization of regulations, which they had a consult on back in 2019 and uh, it's looking like that, you know, we're hoping that that will go forward finally now. And, and so that will be amazing. It will allow free duck stamps for, for youth. It will allow you to transport birds if they've been processed without wings attached. So let's say right. I come yeah. to your duck camp and we shoot a few ducks, cook them, 
and we our eyes were too big and we had one left over and the breast was just sitting there and you go it's cooked and everything well yeah. le legally you couldn't take that back home with you from your duck camp right so i know so anyway know. so there's some great news coming from that modernization. That, that's, that's a big thing, Phil, and, and you'll see it when you go out west, because when we went to Saskatchewan haunted, um, there was two, four, there were six of us. Uh, we had a vehicle and we, we had an awesome week of hunting and we had to transport all these birds back to Ontario driving um, and we had to keep a wing attached yep. on, on every one. So it took up a incredible amount of space so um yeah. that something that not a lot of people think about um especially when you go out west and, you, and you're guiding and, and things like that is listen the guide don't want to keep those birds you got to take the birds with you and and you need to keep the wing attached uh for identification reasons right so and, that that's and really be, cool this will be massive news for the outfitters because oh, you're alluding huge. to because yeah. the other component to that will be they won't have to tag every bird individually, which is yeah. Nice. So you could say take all of my birds, put them in a cooler. That's right. And take them to the processor, right? And yeah, absolutely. Your license uh, number and everything. And then what was it? you touched? You said something else. So it was uh, free free stamps for the youth. There was changing the. Uh, the ability to transport birds but there was something yep. else and then tagging said. tagging is the other one and then there's also the ability to say use it at, at a du or a delta banquet yeah sim simplifying the uh the giving the gifting of birds and allowing that to uh to happen so so that and to go to soup kitchens and to you know to help help provide the hardest thing to get for yeah. for the hungry people as protein so that's that right. Simplify that whole process. So it's oh, a that's lot awesome. of good things in there. Yeah, that is that is a lot of good things. Um, so our fingers are crossed that that will uh, come to fruition and will be in place for this fall. Is our our hope. So, oh wow, we've been here before though, so it's not not a yeah. done deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did want to go back. I did want to touch a little bit on and Phil, you had said too. It's the only thing that hasn't increased. Um. And the and the duck stamp, you know what what is the duck stamp? Seven dollars and fifty cents? Is that what it's it is? Eight dollars and fifty cents. Eight dollars yeah. and fifty cents. Yeah. So eight dollars and fifty cents. And and now I'm sure there's going to be some people that's going to be upset because um, uh, first off they think that it's it's a money grab for the government and and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But in in the case of the duck stamp, is that's not the case. And I, I just right. want people. Yeah, I want people to understand that the that the increase um, and something that I think a lot of hunters hang their hat on is is that we contribute more to the sustainability of hunting and wetlands and and property than any other group or organization in the entire world. Um, so so an increase in the duck stamp, be it the couple dollars and i'm only speculating here now but the couple dollars increase that that's only making things better for us as hunters um this oh, isn't sure. a yeah. this isn't a uh a, a tag system where you're paying the, you know the government of ontario the money for for your tag this is the uh, yeah, canadian wildlife habitat right as you'll recall there's two components there's a permit that goes yeah, that's to right. Canadian Wildlife Service, and then there's a, a stamp. 
yeah. conservation stamp that goes to Wildlife Habitat Canada. So yeah. they're both 850. Anyway, so the, the idea would be to increase it. And, and so on the Wildlife Habitat Canada side, the money would go back to conservation. And in fact, yeah. Delta, I mean, DU, Delta, a lot of groups get, get um, grants from that process. Yeah. And so we put mm -hmm. some of that money back to, to even recruiting more hunters. Um, and, and for habitat, right? So there's a lot and even the hen houses we get money for from the Delta grants. And, and so that's fabulous. And we need, we need that thing to grow. And so right now it's at about 1.2, 1 to $1.2 million a year that is distributed through that granting process, which is significant. Yeah. And yeah, historically, I, I think the number that Wildlife Habitat Canada uses $55 million of duck hunter money has gone back to conservation. So that's a real legacy for us. Yeah. Um, and then the other component, the permit side goes to CWS and they, they use it for their monitoring of, of populations and things like yeah, that. So for it's, banding, it's for banding program, yeah, banding, all that stuff. Exactly, yeah. yeah. No, that, that's awesome. That, that is really good. I really like the idea of those, those changes that, that youth stamp, I, I think is, is a huge thing. Um, I remember, uh, and it was just a small game back in Newfoundland, but I remember our rabbit license as kids were free and that was such a huge deal for us um and then yeah for the, that helps out the outfitter that helps out the, the customer everybody on on taking that whole wing away and then your bag limit and 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 knowing whose birds are whose and not having to tag everything um all good stuff um and amazing and I gotta admit, I didn't know these things were happening in the background. So, uh, so it is. It's it's great to to hear that this is happening, and I I'm pretty sure there's a ton of people that's listening to this right now are uh, are going to start googling how how much uh, crane decoys are. And, and if you think goose decoys are expensive, uh, wait till you gotta buy some crane decoys. Wait, wait till you have to transport the crane. Talk about wing attached. Yeah, I got, we got stories about having to deal with the wing attached when you got a crane. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jim, uh, Phil, sorry, buddy. Did you have anything before we uh, before we start to close this one down? No, I, I have some round, round the table content. Yeah, do it. So starting the round the table. Yeah. Um, Hunting, hunting recruitment doesn't start at, you know, the age of six, seven, 10, 12. It's at any age. So for those that are out there, it doesn't matter who they are, how old they are, take a person hunting, not necessarily a kid, take a person hunting because any person involved in hunting is going to feed back into the sport, feed back into conservation. Great point. Great yeah. point. Yeah. And Jim, is. thanks for coming on. Well, my pleasure and well said, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and adults have more money than kids. <laughs> that's right. That's that, yeah. that's exact. That's who you want. That and and it, but that is a very good point, Phil, because that's who you want to be coming to these to these dinners. And and, and I've went to I've been going to to fundraising dinners for a long, long time. I understand that it's a that it's a fundraiser dinner. I know. That there's going to be articles at that dinner that I could get cheaper in other places, but that that's not the reason for the fundraising dinner. The fundraising dinner is to raise is to get money. So yes, you can get that you can get that Bradley smoker cheaper at Cabela's. 
but the money is going to Cabela's Vice going to your local chapter. So I, I'd like for people to, to always remember that when you go, when you go to the dinner, listen, um, every committee will tell you they appreciate you buying the ticket. But if you come with a pocket full of money and willing to spend and buy some raffle tickets, it, it, it makes, uh, it means the world to them. And, and in case anybody that don't know, all these committees all have a competition on trying to do the, the other committee on how much money is raised. So help out your local committee to be, uh, to be the number one in, in, in the area or in the province or even in the country if, if it's possible. So um, yeah. Jim, we, oh, go for it. Well, I was just gonna say, we have a kind of a ongoing rivalry with Port Rowan, the Winnipeg chapter versus Port Rowan, Southern Ontario to oh, is that right? raise more money. And, and we're, we're happy that some of them are starting to open up again post-COVID virtual yeah. versus... Yeah, you're starting, we're starting to see it here now. We're starting to see some dinners, uh, some dates floating across now. So it is, it it, it was a tough, uh, tough couple of years for, for you guys uh, trying, trying your best and, and hats off to all of the uh, marketing people that, that just really had to step outside of the box when it come to trying to raise money. So um, It'll be good to get people back into banquets, uh, 100% it would and, be. And I must say, our Porto Basque chapter knocked it out of the park last year. They did. The number one chapter in Canada last year. So They did. They did an amazing job. And, and I, I follow those guys. Um, follow those guys. And I actually uh, tried to get in on their bidding. And uh, you know what? Some of the stuff was just too rich for me because I just could I couldn't keep up with it. Like and and it was impressive the amount of money that was that was being spent on the items. It was crazy and I'm proud of them. Uh, very proud. Um, and the people just opened up their pocketbooks. It was amazing. But I I tried to get a bunch of stuff and could not. On no way. Well, I could have. I suppose if I. But uh, I I. I digress my wife would have probably uh, sent me to newfoundland to go live with the poor best chapter if i uh, if i spent that <laughs> i'd move there in a heartbeat yeah <laughs> I love oh yeah um you know jim well i think we've really only scratched the surface because i've got a ton of questions because i'm uh and and selfishly i know you've done a lot of work in newfoundland and i really wanted to, to talk to you about some of the stuff you've done in Newfoundland with, with the with the populations of the sea ducks and stuff down there. So I really wanted to talk to you about that, but I think I think we're gonna have to have you come back on the show another time, if that's okay with you. That'd be wonderful, yep. That, that's amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Jim, do you have anything, any last points, uh, anything you'd like to get out there before we, before we turn this one off? Yeah, no, I'd just like to thank both of you guys and your whole team there. Uh, Real, really enjoyed my time with you and uh, talking about all things that matter to us duck hunters. So thanks, right. thanks so much for having us on. No, thank, thank you. And thanks, Barry, for, for doing the, the introduction. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. And that goes for anybody that's listening. If you have a guess or an idea of something that you would want us to talk about, uh, please, oh, shoot, before I go, the question. Squirrel. was a young, yeah, sorry. So it was a young man. Um, his name is Matt Doxtater. Uh, and his question, his question, Jim, is that he works in a lot of residential areas throughout the city that, it, that he's in. And they've got a lot of storm ponds and, and storm drainage and stuff like that. He says, 
I'm no biologist, but ducks use these storm ponds every year. He was like, is he allowed to put nesting tubes in these ponds, like on his own? Like, can he just walk up uh, on his own, put the nesting tubes in, or does he have to go through the municipality in order to do that? Yeah, he, he would have to go to the municipality for sure to get permission. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and I would encourage him to do so. We did a study in uh, Denver, Colorado, and where we did put a bunch out on those types of ponds, the golf courses and things like that in urban areas, and they work well. Same in Winnipeg. Great, great success. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Whew. I didn't forget Dave would be mad if I forgot that question. He would get he would yell at me, and I don't like it when Dave yells at me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen. This was episode 89 of the Union 0430. Thank you to Mr. Jim Fisher, Vice President of Canadian Policy, and um, got a hockey sock full of knowledge on, on ducks. Um, this has been a great episode, lots of great information. And listen, if you have any questions, any other questions, you can fire them to me. I will fire them off to, to Jim. I will get you the answers. Um, please hit us with it. Get out, get a... I can't stress this enough, regardless of, of who it is, like, like Jim alluded to, as duck hunters, we should be, we should be actively paying into both DU and Delta, because we need both of them, both of them, each has their own role, and they're both doing their own thing, and, and we need everybody on, get involved, volunteer, get out to the banquets, spend some money, and just like Jim and, and Phil said, um, take somebody hunting with you. Ladies and gentlemen, we are as advertised. We're not experts. We're just a bunch of friends that love hanging out and talking about duck hunting. And we get to hang out with some pretty amazing guests while we do it. Everybody, this was episode 89. Big love until next week.